family forms us. Like it or not, for good or for ill, family forms us. It shapes our character and our values and our outlook on life. Chances are you root for the same sports teams your parents rooted for, even if you've moved to New England. Chances are you celebrated Christmas looked a lot like the way your family celebrated Christmas because that's how they did it. That's how you grew up. Has anybody ever said to you, you look like your mother or you sound like your father? You may or may not like that, but you can't escape the truth of it. Family forms us. It not only shapes our character and our values and our loyalties and our traditions, it shapes our ability to trust. Now, last week, we kicked off our winter series on family, and we made clear that we're not just talking about mom, dad, two kids, and a labradoodle, okay? (laughs) Families comes in all uh, sizes and shapes. We're talking about that extended web of relationships The people in your life that you are related to, connected to, by birth or marriage or adoption or kinship or foster care or whatever set of circumstances toss you together in a way that feels like family. And we learned that a home is one of the first places in the world we expect to find belonging This sense that we have a people and a place in the world, that we matter to someone, that we're part of something good and long-lasting, bigger than ourselves. And when you find that at home, it's a wonderful thing. Russell Moore is a Christian leader and an author who has uh, written an award-winning book recently called The Storm-Tossed Family. And he writes, Family can be a source of some of the most transcendent human joy, And family can leave us crumpled up on the side of the road. Family can make us who we are. And family can break our hearts. Now, chances are your family has done a little or a lot of both. We've all experienced the goodness and the heartbreak of family. And when family works, when we find that sense of belonging, it is a source of transcendent joy. When it doesn't work, It can break our hearts and the hearts of those that we love. And so in this series, we're learning how we can begin to offer belonging to the people we call family, whether we're living under the same roof right now or not. And each week, we're identifying some of the values of a a home that offers belonging. And so last week, we started this way. We said our homes become places of true belonging when we value faithfulness, sticking with each other for the long haul, no matter what. And we kind of looked at that last week. Today, we're going to add a second value to the list, and it's the value that we call trust. Now, trust is one of the essential building blocks of human relationships. You can't belong to someone if you don't trust them. They can't belong to you if you're not trustworthy. So trust is at the heart of relationships, but trust is a slippery concept I mean, what exactly is trust? I mean, we know it when we feel it or when we don't, but what is it? How do you define it? And trust is hard to come by. You can't demand someone to trust you. You can't command a trust. You can only earn it. You can only build it. But how do you do that? 
So today, we'd like to go to the scriptures uh, again and, and take a look at how we can answer some of these questions. What is trust? Why is it so important? And how can we begin to build it among the members of our family? I'm going to do some teaching on those questions, and then I'm going to invite one of our student ministry pastors, John Kim, to come up and share a little bit from his personal experience of trust and family. So let's go to some scripture and uh, try to answer a few of these questions. What is trust exactly? The dictionary puts it this way. Trust is a belief in the reliability, ability, or strength of someone or something. Trust in the reliability or ability of someone or something. You trust your bank, I hope, because you believe it has the resources and the expertise to handle your money securely. You trust your doctor because you believe that he or she has the training and the desire to keep you healthy. I'd like to say you trust your pastor. But a story came out, a study just this week, saying that trustworthiness among clergy is at an all-time low. Only 37% of the American population believes that clergy are trustworthy. So that ranks us pretty well below doctors and teachers and police officers, and a couple notches above journalists and building contractors. So I don't know. <laughs> At least we're not at the bottom of the list. That spot goes to, wait for it, politicians. I'm not making it up, and that's all I'm going to say about that, okay? So that's trust in the dictionary sense of the word. The Bible, the Hebrew language, adds an interesting word picture to this abstract concept of trust. Let me take you to one of the most familiar verses on trust in the Bible, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. As you can see, the picture behind trusting is leaning. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. I can lean on this table because I believe it's strong enough to support my weight. It will hold me up. Trust is both a noun and a verb. I believe something, therefore I do something. And what I do is to lean, trusting that that someone or something is strong enough and willing enough to hold me up. I'm sure most of us have experience with things called trust walks and trust falls. You've probably done them in school or maybe in a team building exercise at work. Uh, at a trust walk, you put a blindfold on, and uh, someone leads you around the office or the classroom or some kind of an obstacle course. You are trusting that that person can see where they're going and that they have your best interests in mind. A trust fall is a little bit scarier than that. In trust fall, you allow yourself not just to lean, but actually to fall into someone else's arms, believing that the person or the team behind you is going to catch you and keep you from falling. Once again, you're trusting both the strength and the goodwill of that person or that team, which can be a risky thing to do. Let's just look at some examples. Now, this one is how it's supposed to work. Feel it? Here we go. Ah, oh, that's nice. 
Uh, not so good. You have to trust us. I'm gonna count to three. Just relax and fall. Okay. One, two, three. No way! No no. Now here's the thing. That guy is a pastor. Which only proves the earlier point that we had made about trustworthiness. So you can see here why trust becomes so important to relationships and why it's so important in a family. A child has to trust that their mother or father is going to take care of them. Husbands and wives trust that their partners will be helpful and faithful to them. Siblings trust their brother or their sister to stick up for them. Grandchildren trust their grandparents to give them ice cream whenever they ask for it. <laughs> trust. So it turns out trust is something we do a hundred, maybe even a thousand times a day as members of a family. But every one of them involves a certain amount of risk. So uh, a counselor, a psychologist named Charles Feltman, I think has captured the whole thing pretty well with this definition. He says, trust is choosing to risk making something you value vulnerable to another person's actions. Making something you value vulnerable to another person's actions. You make your money vulnerable to the bank's actions. You make your health vulnerable to the doctor's actions. What's so scary about family life is that you're making your whole self vulnerable to the members of your family. Not just your physical needs, but your emotional, relational, and even your spiritual well-being. You're placing it in the hands of other people, and that's a risky thing to do. It feels like falling backwards. So one of the things we want to do here in the scripture, in this series, is to take a look at some families we meet in the Bible and learn what we can from them about belonging, families that did it well and not so well. So last week we looked at the Holy Family, the family of Jesus, as we talked about their faithfulness to each other over the long haul of their lives. Today, I'd like, to, like us to look for a few moments at the first family, the very first family family in human history. We meet them in the opening pages of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So most of us are familiar with the creation story. Genesis 1 tells us how God brought the universe into existence, tells us that he did it without giving a lot of particulars, but he did it with a sense of order and beauty and purpose over a period of time. Earth and sky, land and sea, flora and fauna, man and woman. Chapter 2 zooms in for a closer look on the creation of man and woman. So let's look at a few verses there out of chapter 2. I'll begin at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This is the first time in creation anything was not good. This man, as handsome as he was, needed something else. He needed another human being. He couldn't be fully human alone. 
And so God made someone for him, another human being who he describes as a helper suitable for him. Now, the word helper doesn't imply assistant or subordinate. It's actually a word of, of strength and stature. It's a word that often describes God in the Bible. And that word corresponding to doesn't just mean equal to. It means someone who matches, someone who fits together with them like pieces of a puzzle. So with that in mind, let's skip down to verse 21. The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, there are all kinds of things we could talk about here, fascinating things to explore. But for today, for our purpose, just one thing. Human beings need each other. We need to be in relationship with other human beings. This is not just a passage about men and women. It's not just a passage about marriage. This is about being human. And to be human is to be in relationship with other human beings. But because we need each other, we're vulnerable to each other. If I need something from you, I put you in a position to help me or to hurt me. And the more valuable that need is, the more vulnerable and the more powerfully you can help me or hurt me. That's why when it works, it's wonderful. And when it doesn't, it breaks your heart. And when I invite you to help me that way, I'm, I'm trusting in your both strength and your willingness to catch me that you'll support me when I lean on you and that you'll catch me when I fall. So we can begin now to understand why this idea of trust is so important to family and why family has such power to make or break us. Because in a family, we're not just trusting each other with our physical needs, food, shelter, clothing. We're trusting each other with our hopes and our dreams and our fears and our failures. And that's scary. When it works, it's wonderful. Let's skip down to verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, this text is often used to describe perfect intimacy. Two people with nothing at all between them. No secrets, nothing hidden. But, but that intimacy was possible only because they trusted each other. They were able to say to one another, everything I am and everything I have is now available to you. And everything I want and everything I need is now vulnerable to you. That's trust. And that's why trust is so important to sexual intimacy. Because you are making yourself vulnerable, not just trusting someone with your body, but with your spirit, with your soul, with the very essence of who you are. That's why marriage is so important to sexual intimacy, because it helps to create a trustworthy environment. But as I said, this passage is not just about marriage, and it's not just about sexuality. This, this just happens to be a picture of how beautiful and life-giving human relationships can be 
when there's trust. So for our purposes, I'll define trust this way. Placing my deepest needs and my highest longings in the hands of another person. The things that I need most in life and the things that I long for and want, I make vulnerable to the people around me, beginning with the members of my family. And trust begins at home. It's learned in the everyday interactions between the members of a family. And when trust is there, family's a source of transcendent joy. When it's not there, it can ruin everything. And as we learn in Genesis chapter 3, trust is quickly and easily broken. Adam and Eve allowed each other to fall. And they felt the heartache of it. And relationships between men and women and human beings have never been the same ever since. And they ended up covering themselves with leaves, hiding from each other and from God. That's what happens when trust is broken. So with that in mind, let me offer a a handful of ideas for how we can, practically speaking, build trust among the members of our family. Again, whether we're under the same roof right now or not. Now, you may want to write these down or take a picture of them because we're going to go through them pretty quickly. I just want to offer you some simple handles on how to get started. Number one, listen well. Building trust begins with listening well. Now, I won't be giving a chapter and verse for every one of these, but let me for this first one. James writes, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. When people are listened to, they feel cared for and understood. And if I believe that you understand me and care for me, that's, it's a lot easier for me now to trust you. So parents, don't just talk to your children. Listen to your children. Ask them questions. Whether they're four or they're 14, or 24, or 40 for that matter. Just keep asking and keep listening. Put the phone down and look them in the eye as they're talking. Listen to them without critiquing or correcting what they have to say. Just listen. Husbands and wives, talk to each other about your day, about your dreams and your fears. Tell each other what you want and need from each other. Listen to your siblings' stories. Listen to your aging parents' aches and pains. Because when we listen, we build trust. Number two, keep your word. If you tell your kids you're going to take them to the park, take them to the park. And if you tell them you're going to take away the laptop, take away the laptop. Nothing confuses a kid. Nothing makes them feel more secure than words that have no meaning, than not following through on things that we say. If you tell your adult siblings that you're there for them, then be there for them. 
Call them, visit them, lend a hand when you're able. Number three, do your job. Sound familiar, Patriot fans? Okay. <laughs> Coach Belichick's been saying that all year long, and you can be sure he's been saying it this week. But it's great advice for the family as well. In a couple of weeks, we'll take a closer look at Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, but we, we hear some of our jobs there. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Children, honor your parents. Parents, don't discourage your children. Grandparents, remember their birthdays and make them feel special. Aunts and uncles, be present in the lives of your nieces and nephews. Let them know there are people out there in the world who care about them, who think about them, pray for them, and will be there for them. That's your job. Nothing builds trust like showing up and doing what you're supposed to do. Fourth, apologize easily. Because the truth is, we won't always do our jobs or listen well. And those kinds of things break trust when we fail. But trust can be rebuilt if we learn to apologize, to say, I'm sorry. And I don't mean a cheap apology. I'm sorry if you were offended by something. <laughs> a real apology that names the thing you did or didn't do, that you own your mistake and express a desire to do better next time. James says, therefore, confess your sins to each other so that you may be healed. Nothing builds trust like admitting you made a mistake, and nothing shuts trust down like denial, refusing to name or face your failures. So if trust has been broken in a relationship, the it's hard to rebuild, but it begins with saying, I'm sorry, and meaning it. And then fifth, this one might surprise you, have some fun. Now, these first ones feel heavy and a little bit difficult, but this one really is just as important. Laughing together is a powerful bonding experience. You have to, you have to feel safe if you're going to laugh. That's why we, we don't laugh in a nearly empty movie theater because we feel exposed and vulnerable. And so families that learn to laugh together, to have fun, to take a vacation, to, to go to the beach, to go to the mountains, to play a board game, to watch a fun movie together, they're learning to relax with each other, to feel comfortable, and that builds trust. And then the last one, which really applies to all of them, take some risks. When we trust someone, we make ourselves vulnerable to them. If I share a dream or a fear with you, you might laugh at me or not take it seriously. If I admit a mistake to you, you could use it against me or make a judgment about me. If I ask you to help me with something, you might disappoint me and let me down. But those are the risks that I need to take if you and I are going to be in any kind of a meaningful relationship with each other. So trust is a big deal, but it's built by these small, everyday behaviors. 
So those are a handful of ways that we can learn to build trust with each other, members of our family. Chances are one or two of those is especially relevant to you right now. And chances are one or two of those is especially difficult for you to do. Why not talk about that over lunch today? Someone take a risk and bring up what do we think about trust in our family? Let's put it this way. Our homes become places of true belonging when we value trust, placing my deepest needs and highest longing in the hands of another person, beginning with my family. So, so we've learned a few things here. We've got some definitions, some practical handles, but still trust is a kind of a slippery concept. What does it actually look and feel like? Would you welcome uh, Pastor John Kim, one of our student pastors, to come, and he's going to share a little bit of his story. Hello, hello. Um, so I love the examples that Pastor Brian gave on ways we can build trust within a family. But I started to think about some ways in which trust might actually be hindered or pro and prevented or prohibited in our family. What are some things that actually prevent trust from being built within our families? Do you remember the first time you got a bad grade? I don't mean in the Massachusetts kind of way where it feels like sometimes like in Massachusetts in this high academia place an A minus feels bad. I'm talking about like a bad grade <laughs> with a capital D, okay? <laughs> I still remember my, the first time I got a bad grade. Um, it was in fifth grade. I got my report card back and I looked at the grades and I was like, not too bad, not too bad, not too bad, science grade. I was like, what just happened? <laughs> and I saw a letter that I had never seen before on a report card. I was like, does the alphabet go down this low? I was so confused. <laughs> and I could, as I saw that grade, I could hear the voices of my friends who said they brought home a B to their parents. And their parents were like, a B just stands for you better get an A next time. <laughs> and I was like, if the B stands for you better get an A next time, I think mine stands for don't come home. But in that moment, I start to feel something that I had never really felt before, especially within the context of family, because I had to bring this report card back to my parents. I started to feel shame. You see, in Korean culture, not all Korean culture, but one of the few characteristics of Korean culture is honor and shame. And so even when someone is just one year older than you, you use a completely different set of words to honor someone that's older. You bow to people who, are, who, are, who you want to show honor to. And one of the things that's really particular is that as an individual, your successes and failures are representative of your family's success and failure. And so if you do well, your family does well. If you do bad, it reflects poorly on your family. And so as I got this grade and I was, I was walking home, I could feel the shame of this grade. My parents had immigrated from Korea to America so that my brother and I could receive a good education. They sacrificed everything. They left family. They left their parents to come here so that we would receive a good education. And I'm bringing home a don't come home. <laughs> and I could feel the weight of that as I was bringing this report card back. And the shame was mounting and mounting. And so, because of shame, I couldn't trust my family. I was like, I need to lie. 
Because they felt like if I trusted my family with this grade, they would actually be ashamed of me. And so it left me vulnerable. And so I decided that I needed to lie. And so I saw the report card and I was like, okay, if I just find a pen that looks like the pen that this report card is written in, all I need is a line and it turns into a B, right? And so I was thinking of all these ways to lie to my parents and I get home. And it turns out that report cards were mailed home already. <laughs> but, but this idea of shame is just something that had been in my life for such a long time. I was so indoctrinated by this because of my culture. And it was just something that was a huge part of my life. I could write an entire sermon about the shame I felt writing this sermon about shame. I could feel shame in everything that I do because it's just been such a huge part of my culture. You see, even in 10th grade, I remember getting a report card back and my parents were not living with me at the time. They were living in Korea and so I was living with my brother. And um, as you can imagine, a teenager living without their parents, their grades are not going to be great. And so I got my report card back and it wasn't just one bad grade, it was several bad grades. A couple of don't come homes (laughs) with a couple of can't come homes. And I, and, I, and I got the report card, and again, I felt shame. And I could have chosen in that moment, I was thrust into a moment where I could trust my family and be like, hey, mom and dad, I had a really hard time. But just because of this thing that had been really all over my heart, I, I, I felt so much shame, so I lied. And I said a ridiculous lie. My parents asked me, they're like, did you get your report card? And I was like, oh, uh, Massachusetts is trying this thing. They don't really do report cards anymore. And they're like, what? <laughs> it's this new, they just like say good job. And it's, you know, <laughs> it's more of like a, you know, a abstract kind of thing we're trying here. But they rolled with it. I thought I had outsmarted my parents, but my mom came to visit during a vacation one time. And what I did was I took the report card that I had gotten and I had to hide it. And so I put it inside a, bi- I put it inside a binder with a bunch of different papers and I put it into a bookshelf with a bunch of different papers and books and it was impossible to find. <laughs> and one day, my mom's cleaning my room. And as she's cleaning, she bumps into this bookshelf. And as she bumps into this bookshelf, one binder falls out. And as that one binder falls out, one piece of paper slides out from that binder. And on the floor is my report card. And as my mom picked it up, I still felt so much shame. And I didn't feel like I could trust them with this vulnerable thing. And so I was like, no, mom, that was from a year ago. And I started to try to come up and manufacture more lies because of the shame that I felt. For me, and maybe for some families here, the hindrance to trust, the reason trust might not be growing within our family, might be because of the presence of shame. Genesis chapter 2, the passage for today, it gets at this. In Genesis chapter 2, at the very end, it says this. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So for Adam and Eve, in the absence of shame, there was a presence of trust. But I think for us sometimes, we ask for trust from people, but we don't get rid of the shame. And we say, trust me with your vulnerabilities. And as soon as they say something that might be embarrassing or vulnerable, we say, you did what? But it's so hard for those two things to coexist. It's so hard to trust when you feel like there's shame. 
And I think that's hopefully the image that we get for our families and for our friendships, our close relationships today. That we would be allowed to be naked, vulnerable, emotionally naked, and without shame. That families can coexist in that place. That relationships can exist in that place. That even as Christians, a lot of times we ask for trust. Tell me everything about your life. And I think I feel that this probably many times throughout just being a young pastor too. Tell me, and as soon as they tell me, I say, why did you do that? And now they don't want to talk anymore. And so as Christians, what does it look like to build trust? It means to take out shame. Hopefully the image for Christians and for the church and for Grace Chapel is that, they would, that this place would be a place where trust is present and shame is absent. That families, relationships, friendships would be places where trust is present and shame is absent. And we do that by the ways that Pastor Brian shared with us today about how we don't make fun of people, those sarcastic remarks. We listen well. We hear people's problems, sorrows, heartaches. <clears throat> and as a high school, sorry, and as a high school pastor, I think um, I've been thinking about what this looks like within a family. And I think it's easy sometimes um, for, for families, when they hear something that their child has done wrong, it's easy to feel, you know, a little bit of uh, a, a shame. And so what we do is we say, you can't do this anymore, you can't do this anymore, and you are no longer allowed to do anything. And my wife, Hina, she works um, as a mental health counselor for families with, like, severely uh, broken trust within family relationships. And she says a lot of times that's what families tend to do, is that once trust is broken... They get rid of all areas and avenues of trust and not allowed to have any uh, opportunity to regain trust back. But she says oftentimes that actually works in a different way. Because when you start to take trust away from people that have broken trust, what it does is just reminds them that they're not worthy of being trusted. And so maybe for families here today, maybe we can offer small opportunities for our families that have been broken in trust to regain trust back. That small opportunities, little by little, we would open up avenues in which trust can be regained. <coughs> this topic is really important to me, this idea of trust and shame, especially because I think it always impacted my understanding of who God was. I thought God was ashamed of me. And that when I sinned, that he was embarrassed of who I was. And that I couldn't come to church. I couldn't praise him. I couldn't pray because I'd sinned. He's embarrassed of me. But I remember after I got that report card, I went back to Korea that summer to see my parents. And in my head, all I imagined and envisioned was my parents coming to the airport with the report card. <laughs> That instead of saying, welcome home, it'd just be like, you got up. And that's all I could imagine would happen. But that's not what happened. When I got out of the airport terminal and I went to see my parents, they like climbed over railings to come to me to embrace me. Because in that moment, they didn't care about what I did. They just cared about who I was. And it was those moments that I began to slowly realize that God is not ashamed of me. That God is not ashamed of us. 
He's not embarrassed of us. That despite the things in our lives that might be dirty, that we don't need to be embarrassed to come to him. It doesn't mean we get to just do whatever we want, however we want, but it means that God is so gracious to forgive, that God is so ready to welcome, that God is gentle in his grace and mercy. Well, thank you, John. Just a thought or two to close up. We begin to understand from John's story now why this thing of trust is so important. We're not just helping the members of our family build healthy relationships with each other, but to make possible a relationship with God. Because if I can't trust my earthly family, how can I trust a heavenly father? If my family is ashamed of me or embarrassed by me, how must God feel about me? So brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, parents and children, aunts and uncles, nieces and nephews, one of the most important things we can do for each other is to practice trust with and for each other. When someone you love trusts you places in your hand some story, some dream, some need, some confession. Catch it. Catch it gently but firmly. And let them know they can lean on you and they can lean on God. If there's going to be more trust in your family, someone's going to have to make the first move. Someone's going to have to ask a thoughtful question. Someone's going to have to share a need or a dream or a fear. Someone's going to have to suggest a fun activity. Someone's going to have to say, I'm sorry. Those things are scary, but they are the only pathway to real trust and real belonging. They're especially risky, I know, when trust has been broken in a family. And as John and I were talking about this this week, we realized that a message like this could easily surface a lot of hurt and heartbreak, maybe from your distant past, maybe from more recent days. Know that in the weeks to come, beginning next week, we'll talk about how do you restore relationships, how do you rebuild relationships in a family. It takes a long time to rebuild trust, but it can be done. It begins with these small, everyday steps. And know that whatever your earthly family looks like, there is a Father in heaven you can trust. Someone who will always listen to you. Someone who is ready to forgive you. Someone who keeps his promises. Someone who's already made the first move, coming to be with us, to be close to us, to look us in the eye. Someone who has fallen backwards onto a cross so that we wouldn't have to. Someone who is not ashamed of you, but takes delight in you and is ready to welcome you with open arms and to catch you whenever you fall in his direction. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for being this kind of a God. 
making possible this kind of trust. Thank you for designing us to be these kinds of people capable of experiencing and extending trust to each other. Thank you for those who have loved us and given us a sense of belonging. Forgive those who have failed us, Lord, and help us to forgive them. And help us to more fully be the trusting people you would have us to be towards others and towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.